0: Good morning everyone! It's been a while. I hope you guys have been taking care of yourselves. Um, we'll, do, we'll be doing two readings today. Um, the first reading comes from Joshua chapter 3 to chapter 4. Joshua chapter 3, starting from verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set up from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers made through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about two thousand cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out from before you, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hiv- Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. at Adam the city that is beside Zarethan and those flowing down toward the sea of the Ereba the salt sea were completely cut off and the people passed over opposite Jericho now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all Israel were passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan When the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. And this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall, you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel, a memorial forever. And then the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged, and they laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan, until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over, The ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Ged and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priest bearing the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, The waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgah on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgah. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you've passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, where he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. second reading comes from Romans Romans chapter 8 and we'll be reading from verse 31 Romans chapter 8 starting from verse 31 what then shall we say to these things if God is for us who can be against us if he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all No height, no depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. See you guys soon. Be sure to like, subscribe and comment below.
1: Good morning, everyone. As you can see, I'm preaching from a different place today. This is the basement of my house. Um, I'm just self-isolating for a few days, uh, but I'm okay. Uh, It's great to be able to continue on this sermon series in the book of Joshua. And hopefully you've been able to appreciate God's faithfulness in giving His land to His people, and especially the story of Rahab last week in seeing a Gentile come to put her trust in the God of Israel. Please join me now as I pray for us as we look into Joshua chapter 3 and 4. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll give us eyes to see and soft hearts to be amazed and be in awe of the mightiness that you display in these chapters. Help us uh, to never forget uh, the mighty acts that you have done, especially in the gospel, that we would tell it to the world and that we would fear you always. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ten, nine, eight, God is
0: great. Seven, six, five, God's alive.
1: Four, three, two, one, He's the King of everyone.
0: God's the mighty, mighty Lord of all.
1: Children really love to sing about the might of the Lord. They have this genuine wow knowing that God can do things that no one else can. But as we grow older, many of us lose that sense of God's mightiness, don't we? We grow in our knowledge of what God has done, but we shrink in our awe and appreciation and wonder for the miraculous, for the mightiness, for the magnificence of God. Perhaps we, we might even feel embarrassed about the mightiness of God, the miraculousness of God's might. In a rational world, to shout too loudly of the miraculous, we feel almost embarrassed to do that. But you see, God does things in his his mighty, mighty way so that it it can never be mistaken that he's the one doing it. And how will we respond to that? How will we respond to the miraculousness of God's might? Now in Joshua chapter 3, we see Israel perched at the edge of the promised land of rest that they are about to enter. This has been a long, long time coming. 400 years since Abraham was promised this land of rest. 40 years since the previous generation was meant to have entered this promised land, but they couldn't because of their unbelief. But at long last, they are about to go into the promised land of rest. Chapters 3 and 4 of Joshua details events that make one clear point. Lots of details, one clear point. The Lord alone mightily brings His people into the promised land of rest. When we read any story, and especially stories in the Old Testament, we need to notice carefully how it is told. Now at times, stories are told in a a breathless and action-packed kind of way. Things are happening in quick succession. There's not a lot of detail or description. It's like that montage scene in a movie. Right, a, a series of quick cuts that gives you a, a bird's-eye, wide-angled view of events and pushes the storyline forward. Stories told like this wants us to focus on action and plot development, doesn't it? But at other times, stories really slow down. They are told in a very deliberate way with great amount of detail. Is that lingering slow-motion scene that we find in many dramas, usually accompanied by a very emotive soundtrack to to really ramp up the feels? Is that bit of the show where you see the scene from multiple angles, uh, from from different character perspectives? Stories like this wants us to really slow down and savor the moment, and to 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 really let its significance sink in. Joshua chapter 3 and 4 is storytelling in this slowed, write-down kind of way. There's a lot of repetition in these chapters. You will see as you read through it, or as you heard it read before, that Joshua will receive a a series of commandments from the Lord, and then we hear him repeating these commandments to the people, and then we'll hear the action being played out. But, But there's even more description, more detail added as the action is played out. We see a camera angle from one side of the Jordan River, then we see a camera angle from the middle of the Jordan River, then we see another camera angle from the other side of the river after they have crossed. Lots of detail, but all making one clear point. The Lord alone mightily brings His people into the promised land of rest. But what we also see clearly in these two chapters are purpose statements. You see the so that, so that, right? The author hasn't left us to guess what, what we are to take away from this chapter. But let's begin first with the details uh, of the passage uh, to appreciate the point that is being made about the Lord's might. And then we'll step back and look at the purpose statements and to see how this applies to us as Christians and as people today. Now, when it comes to detail and repetition, what stands out the most in these two chapters is the Ark of the Covenant, doesn't isn't it? By sheer numbers alone it really stands out. If you go and count them it's 22 times the arc is mentioned. But sheer numbers alone don't tell the whole story. The arc functions in the story as the key player, as the primary actor. It is the key mechanism at the very center of this story. It is instrumental to all that happens. Every camera angle has the Ark in frame and in focus. Now, what does the the Ark represent? Well, the Ark of the Covenant represents the Lord's presence. It is a physical representation, expression of the Lord Himself. Now, the Ark of the Covenant itself is a gold-plated chest that has inside of it the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. It also has Aaron's staff, and a jar of manna inside it. Now, there's a really rich history to the ark that you can read all about for yourself in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to appreciate just what it represents, how it represents the Lord's presence and the Lord's provision for Israel. But we don't need to do that now. The details of Joshua 3 and 4 are more than enough for us to appreciate and to see that the ark represented God's very presence. Now, you see the ark, it leads the way for where God's people are to go. Chapter 3, verse 2 to 4. As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. The ark led the way, right? It it went ahead before the people and they had to follow. But the people had to leave a gap of 2,000 cubits, which is about 900 meters between the ark and themselves. Now, right at the present moment, we all need to have this 1.5 meter social distancing to prevent contamination of disease, don't we? Well, Israel needed 900 meters of holy distancing to prevent themselves from being burned up by the sheer holiness of the Lord. The need for this separation showed the ark to be or to contain the very presence of the Holy Lord God. And so the Lord, through the ark, leads the way into the promised land. Where it goes, the people follow. But even more significantly... Where it goes, the mighty, miraculous acts of the Lord is done. Where the ark goes, we see the mighty, miraculous acts of the Lord being done. And so from the mechanism of the ark, we see the most significant action of these chapters, which is the miracle of the river crossing. The miracle of the crossing is the centerpiece of these chapters that shows that the Lord alone mightily brings His people Into the promised land of rest. Let's pick it up from verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. And then in verses fourteen to seventeen, the action begins. And the slow-mo effect is then applied. Every detail is expanded and belabored. So when, the, so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away, at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathan, and those flowing down toward the sea of the Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Amazing detail here, isn't it? Looking at, starting at verse 15, have a look. As soon as the feet of those carrying the ark touched, kissed the surface of the Jordan River at once, the river responds. In the second part of verse 15, let's throw in some seasonal context here while we're at it. Just so you know, it was flood season when the waters burst the banks of the Jordan. Now, if you do some research, at flood season, the Jordan River is about 1.5 kilometers wide. And it's not just a, a gentle, flowing, placid stream. It was a raging river during this flood season. Verse 16, the waters stood up and rose up in a heap. It conveys this image of a vertical wall, right angles, right, right angles to the riverbed. It was no gradual wave here. It was just a standing wall of water on either side. And again, in verse 16, it, uh, sorry, in, in verse, yeah, in verse 16, it, it, it rose up very, very far away. Now, the north wall of the water was at a city called Adam uh, beside Zarathan. And the south wall of the water was at the salt sea now if you look at the map all uh, right of, of, of jordan which is where this is a, this is occurring this is a distance of about 45 kilometers now if i show you a place you know a map of brisbane 45 kilometers is basically the brisbane airport to costco in ipswich right brisbane airport to costco in ipswich this is where the water stopped wide enough for two and a half million Israelites to walk over wide enough that if you were an Israelite walking over and you look to your left and you look to your right, you could imagine that you were in a river at all. It would be, there would be no water in sight. 45 kilometers. What can you see on either ends? Absolutely no water at all. And the final detail, verse 17. The priests bearing the ark stood firmly on dry ground all Israel passed over on dry ground. No mucky mud, no squelchy sand, not a drop of water touched their leather sandals as they walked through this so-called river that once stood there. Now, what are we supposed to get from this ultra-detailed, slow-mo view of this river crossing? What we are supposed to get is that it's an astounding miracle. It's an astounding miracle of impossible proportions. It is the Lord God showing off, showing off His absolute might. It is the Lord alone who mightily brings His people into the promised land of rest. Then comes the memorial. And once again, the Lord gives instructions to Joshua and then the instructions are carried out. Details are repeated and belabored again. Now Israel was to be in no doubt and they were to never forget in this generation or the next or the one after that, that it was the Lord, it was the Lord who brought Israel through the Jordan River and into the promised land of rest. Chapter four, verse five. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Pick it up again in verse 19. The people came out out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. And they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Twelve men, one from each tribe of Israel, each grabbing one bone-dry stone from the middle of the Jordan, placed it in Gilgal on the edge of the Jordan inside of the promised land, a memorial set up so that Israel will never forget not just what happened on that day, but especially who it was that did these amazing things. They were never to forget that it was the Lord alone who mightily brought His people into the promised land of rest. They were to remember that that they couldn't do it for themselves, that no one else could have done it for them, that only the Lord God could And only the Lord God did bring His people into the promised land of rest. Now, before we consider the purpose of these two chapters of the Old Testament and what it means for us, we need to think about uh, where the Bible goes with what we're reading here in the Old Testament. We need to always ask ourselves, when we read the, the Old Testament, how do the New Testament authors speak about the themes and the truths that are in our Old Testament passage Answering these questions will then help us to see how we as Christians are to apply these Old Testament passages. Now, when it comes to the promised land of rest that dominates the book of Joshua, the New Testament authors understands this to mean the rest that we find in Jesus Christ, the, the rest that we receive in Jesus Christ, both the rest that we receive in Christ now and the eternal rest that we will have in Christ forever. Now, Israel waited 400 years to enter into the promised land of rest. But humanity has been waiting since the fall of man, since the very beginning of humanity. Human beings, we are restless souls, desperately seeking and needing rest. We want rest from our sin and our guilt and our failures. We yearn for redemption, don't we? We we love redemption stories. For the past few weeks, it was seen that in MasterChef, every other cook has been a redemption cook where they tried to fix a, a failed dish from the past. And we love these redemption stories because we seek for the rest of redemption ourselves. We want rest from our toiling and striving in difficult relationships that always seem to break down. We want rest from this toiling and striving of, of difficult work, of frustrations in work, of failures in work, of, of, of hard work in, in this life. We want rest from the endless and the vain pursuit of pleasure and of comfort and of security and of meaning in life that, that never seem to last, that never seem to that we never really seem to fully get. It's always out of our grasp This rest from these, to, to find rest from these endless vain pursuits. Joshua chapter 3 and 4 reminds us that only the, Lord, only the mighty Lord can bring us into true rest. And this He has done through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, the true rest that we find in Christ is the rest that Joshua was always looking forward to. Hebrews 4 tells us, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his You see, through Christ, God brings us into His rest. The trauma and the burden of sin and guilt and failures uh, are removed from us. We have redemption from sin and guilt through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have significance and safety and security. In Christ, we find meaning in life, the reason to live. You see, in Christ, we are freed to live with whatever amounts of of pleasure or comfort or achievement or, or security in this life. But in Christ, we are free to not have to live for them because in Christ, we have the rest that we truly need. We can rest content in all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for us. Now, if you haven't Receive and experience this rest in Jesus If you don't quite fully understand what it means To find our rest now and forever in Jesus Then ask someone about it Get someone to explain to you why it is That only in Jesus Only through his life, death and resurrection Do you have this rest now And will you have this rest forever In spite and despite of whatever Burdens and troubles we have in this life Now the point of Joshua 3 and 4 Is really very clear All of the details, all of the slow-motion effects, all of the multi-camera perspectives all point to the one fact that the Lord alone mightily brings His people into rest. For Israel, it was the promised land of rest. And for us today, it is rest in Jesus Christ now and forever. Now, these chapters clearly make this one clear point, but it also makes three very clear purposes about why God has acted in such a mighty, mighty way. Three clear purposes. <clears throat> now, the first purpose is to exalt Joshua as God's chosen leader. So exalt Joshua as God's chosen leader. In chapter 3, verse 7, we see the Lord declare to Joshua that today, the day of this mighty act of crossing, is the day that Israel will come to see and exalt Joshua as Moses successor as God's leader and at the end of the day after all of the events of these two chapters have unfolded chapter 4 verse 14 declares the fulfillment on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life <clears throat> God's mighty acts validates his chosen leader that was true of Joshua And it is true of the second Joshua, the final Joshua, who is Jesus. The mightiest acts of God in the incarnation through the virgin birth, in the life and death, and especially in the resurrection of Jesus, validates Jesus, puts a huge validation stamp that Jesus is God's chosen leader. And even more than just a chosen leader, he validates Jesus as God's Son, God's Savior, God's Christ. To us. Now, this is all true, but I want to focus more so on the second and third purposes, which we find right at the end of chapter 4, verse 24. So that, and this is the purpose statement right here, isn't it? So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Now, why did God act in such a mighty, mighty way in these chapters? Why, why would God go to the trouble of parting the, the River Jordan in such a dramatic and miraculous and mighty fashion? Why would God go to the trouble of of becoming man through the virgin birth, of, of having Jesus perform all these signs and wonders and miracles throughout his life, of having him die so publicly and humiliatingly on a Roman cross, and then so dramatically raising him from the dead and having him appear to hundreds and hundreds of people? Why would God do it like that? Well, it's so that all the people of the earth may know without a shadow of a doubt that God, the Lord, is mighty. It is irrational. It is unexplainable by human reason. It goes against all scientific, scientific evidence. And that's exactly the point. In the gospel, God acts in this totally unhuman way, in an impossibly, utterly impossible way in a truly miraculous and marvelous and fantastical way to make it absolutely clear that God alone is the one who is supremely and divinely mighty. Don't be ashamed of God's might. Don't be ashamed of the way he acts with with miracles, especially through the miracle of the gospel. Instead, rather than being ashamed of it, is to declare it and to make it known. That's what God tells us to do in these chapters, isn't it? To tell it to your children and to tell it to the world of the Lord God Almighty. To tell them the facts of how God has acted mightily in history, especially through Jesus. But not just the facts, but to create and and, and, and generate an awe in people in how God has acted in this way. The gospel is awesomely, gloriously, out of this world, beyond human reason and explanation. The gospel is the might and the power of God in full display. Declare it. Make it known. Now, Israel, they had the memorial stones, the 12 stones heaped up at Gilgal to create opportunity to teach and remind anyone who sees these stones about what they meant. So, you know, the children of the next generation passing by would see this strange sight and would ask, what do these stones mean? And the parents then would have opportunity to tell the children about the mighty God who brought them into the land of rest. But they had more than that, of course. Israel had the tabernacle that followed them everywhere, and then the temple that was built. They had the land, the promised land itself. They had festivals and feasts. They had the law of God. And the children and the next generations will like, say, what, what do these things mean? Opportunities for the people who understand these things to tell it, to make it known, the mighty God who brought them into the land, the mighty God who is their redeemer, their savior, their king. And for us, we have even more opportunities, don't we? We have even more of these remembrance stones kind of moments for us to draw upon. You know, God has acted in history in such a way that defines history. Even our calendars are defined by by God, by the mightiness of God's act in the gospel. Before Christ, and Eno Domini, in the year of the Lord, our calendars point to Jesus, his might as a center point of history. 2,000 years of human history is so greatly shaped by Christianity in almost every part of the world. Everywhere you go, you'll see hospitals and universities that were started by Christians. You you can't drive more than five to ten minutes in most cities in the world and not go past a church or to see a cross somewhere in a building on a hospital somewhere. Christianity has left a huge mark in our human history. It has shaped our legal system. It has shaped our language. It's in the media. It's, It's in our our movies and tv shows as well as on our jewelry, as well christianity is everywhere the question is whether we will draw people's attention to these things and whether we will direct conversations to a place where people will ask us what do these things mean why are there so many churches why are there cross everywhere you look Why is the dating system B.C. and A.D.? Why are people trying to change it? There are so many opportunities for us if we are willing to give an answer when people ask, what do these things mean? To be ready with a loving, a wise, uh, um, a creative, a helpful answer to be able to point them to the mightiness of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be able to bring them to receive the rest that God wants to bring them into in Christ now and forever. God acts in a mighty way so that we can tell people about God, so that they will receive Jesus and find rest. Now, the final purpose right at the end of this chapter is one for God's people. It's one for God's people so that we would fear the Lord our God forever. Now, we've said it many times here at SLE Church that fear of God doesn't mean being terrified of God or or, of dreading that God will smite us at the sort of slightest sin or the slightest stuff up that we make. That's not what it means to have the fear of the Lord. After all, the believer is secure in salvation that we know that we are safe uh, from God's wrath in Christ. But true belief recognizes God for who he truly is. The Lord God is majestically mighty. He is almighty above all. To fear the Lord means to understand our place before God. It is to revere God and to honor Him and to humble ourselves before Him. To fear God is to see our need, to listen to Him and to obey Him and to repent when we sin. Now do we fear the Lord God or have we lost that fear of God? You see, we as God's people so easily lose our fear of the Lord God, don't we? We so easily forget to be in awe of God and of His mightiness, of His rule, of His power over us. And so we need to keep being reminded. We as God's people easily start fearing other things. We let other powers rule over us. And that was Israel's problem as they continued their life in the land. They had all these fears. They feared their enemies. They feared about not having enough that God wouldn't provide for them. They succumbed to the power of their own sinful desires and the lures and the temptations of the nations around them. Now, we too have many fears, don't we? And we too easily allow other powers to rule over our lives. Perhaps now more than ever, we have growing fears for the present and the future. Some of us fear whether we have enough finances, right, because things are tough. We have relational fears of broken relationships or of of singleness, of of not being able to have children, perhaps. We have health fears. We have fears for what the future holds. And we also let the powers around us rule over our lives, the power of our own sin, perhaps, or the power of self-expectation or the expectations heaped on by the people around us. Well, God's word today calls us to fear only the Lord God Almighty because fearing God who is this mighty is how we find rest. It is only in fearing God do we find rest. Fearing the mighty Lord and letting him rule over us means that we can deal with all of these fears in life and all of these competing powers that, that seek to rule over us we can rest assured that we can fear and be under the rule of the God who is truly mighty. For if the Lord God Almighty is for us, then who or what can be against us? Never forget that. Never forget that. And keep growing your awe of God's might and power, especially in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tell it to others and fear the Lord your God forever. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we give you great thanks for the amazing display of your might seen in Joshua 3 and 4 as you brought your people, you alone could have done this, through the River Jordan in such a mighty and miraculous way. But for us living in 2020, we have even more information, even greater awareness, greater knowledge of the mightiness of your actions through the gospel, through your son. That you sent your son, God became man through the virgin birth. That in his life, he did mighty acts, miraculous signs and wonders. That he died so publicly on a Roman cross and was raised so spectacularly back from the dead to be witnessed by so many. And for your mighty works to be at work throughout the last 2000 years help us never to be ashamed of your mightiness but instead help us to always remember it and to tell it to our children to tell it to our children's children to tell it to our friends to tell it to our colleagues to tell it to our classmates to tell the whole world and never be ashamed of your mighty acts to bring us salvation to bring us rest through Jesus And please help us each day to live with an awareness of your power and might, that we might always live in fear of you, that we would revere you, we would honor you, we would humble ourselves before you, we would be driven to want to obey you and to to listen to the words that you have to say to us, to turn away from our sin, knowing that as we live in fear of you, we truly
0: find rest. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.